So you should already be in Galatians chapter 4. We are in a series called Set Free. (coughs) This series walking verse by verse through the book of Galatians, uh, where we are discovering what uh, has happened, what has transpired for this group of churches in Galatia, that, that they have wandered away from freedom that Jesus paid for for them to have and have embraced religion, have embraced tradition, have embraced legalism, once again, as we are at the halfway point of the series, this is week six of ten weeks, so we're, we're just past the half point, way point. I, I want to reiterate what we said at the beginning, what we believe about this book right here. Uh, why do we do this? Why do we go verse by verse through the Bible? Why is this something that, that every year we take a, a few weeks to do? Because we believe that the Bible is the written word of God. We believe this thing is the written word of God. We believe that it is written by men, by people, but divinely inspired. What that means is that the Holy Spirit moved upon people to write these words, to pass it down. We believe that it is historically true, so the claims that it makes about history actually happen. We believe it's generationally relevant. So it's not just a book that was written 2,000 years ago for people 2,000 years ago, but it relates, it applies, it's impactful for us today. We believe it's spiritually vital, that it is impossible to lead a successful, victorious life as a believer without access to the Word of God, without feeding on this and allowing it to speak into our lives. Most significantly, we believe this is the story of God. These are His works, His plans, and His love in our world. So with that context, with that preface, let's turn to Galatians chapter 4. We we turn into the second half of this book, and Paul's tone is going to change slightly as we get into chapter 4. His focus is going to change slightly. Um, At the end of chapter 3, he he was talking about this concept of the Old Testament, that basically what had happened here in Galatia is these Judaizers, is, is the theological term for them. These people who were Christians, but they said, hey, we need to return to Judaism. Like we need, yeah, Jesus is good, but he's only part of it. We need to do the Jewish feasts. We need to do the Jewish customs. We need to do the Jewish practices. So these Judaizers had come into the church and started adding all this stuff to the freedom that Jesus had given them and saying, hey, this is the true religion. This is the true way to get to God. And and so Paul says the Old Testament was good. But it was given to us just as a guardian, just as something to watch over us while we were juveniles, while we were, were maturing, and Jesus has come to ultimately set us free. That the Old Testament is not the source of that freedom. Ultimately, what we, described, what we discovered is the Old Testament shows us our need for a Savior, and it also points to that Savior. It shows us who that Savior ultimately will be. So in Galatians chapter 4, Paul says this. He says, what I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. And that might seem like a really ridiculous statement on its face. He's not saying an underage child is a slave. What he's saying is he doesn't have the freedom of, that an adult has. Right? Uh, did, did any of you have those parents where it was like, yes, I was a slave? Uh, like those extra, extra strict parents? Some of us know what that's like. Or you may have felt like that at some point in time. Some of us maybe weren't blessed with parents who were very involved in our lives at all. And maybe it would have been beneficial for us to have some more restrictions, to, to have some more parental boundaries and guidelines. Um, but Paul says, look, a, a child doesn't have the freedom 
that an adult has. So he's saying under the Old Testament, you didn't have the freedom that we have now. You weren't yet set free. Verse 2, he says, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. Did, did you have any things set for you by your dad, by your parents, that, hey, at a certain age, at such and such an age, you can do this? That, man, I, I looked forward to this. I know one of mine that's absolutely ridiculous as I look back upon it now. Um, when I was like about 14 years old, I decided I wanted an earring. Uh, and, and I really wanted an earring, and my dad is like a, a Marine, you know, he's a man's man, he's like, my son ain't getting no earring, right? Uh, and, and so the rule they put in place was, I could not get any piercings until I was 18. That at 18, hey, we'll, we'll allow you to make that decision if you want to, and I'm sure they prayed and believed that, hey, this is a phase, and he'll be done with it by the time he gets to 18, but they, to my parents' chagrin, uh, at 18 years old, on my birthday, I went and got my left ear pierced. Uh, and I thought, hey, that was all I'm going to do. I don't want anything else. I'm just going to pierce my left ear. But it didn't take me about six months from there that I decided, you know what, that's not enough. And I got my right ear pierced as well. Uh, and, and then I started just wanting piercings of all kinds. I don't know if it was the attention. I don't know if it was rebellion. Or, you know, it was like my parents thought it was demonic. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what that was, but uh, I ended up getting my tongue pierced. I had plans to get my labray pierced and my eyebrow pierced. And, and finally, I realized if I didn't stop, I was going to be that person you see at the airport with like 27 holes in their head. Uh, and this probably wasn't very healthy for me. So it was a phase. I did grow out of it. Mom and dad, I have no piercings currently. You can thank God for that. Um, but, but I looked forward to that day. At 18, I could do this. Right? Most of us probably had something that we looked forward to, or maybe right now as a younger person, something you are looking forward to. When I get to such and such an age, I can do this. I can stay up until this bedtime. Right? I, I can get this bigger allowance. I can drive. I can have this freedom. I can go to the dance. I can date. Whatever it might be, there's, there's some level of freedom that often comes with an advanced age. And Paul says, look, as a child, you don't have that freedom. But when you reach an age of maturity, you are granted all of those things. As an adult, if I wanted to go get whatever piercing I could, I would not have to answer to mom and dad. I would have to answer to my wife. Uh, so that's a different level of authority that I am now under. Uh, but, but that is a freedom that I now have. He says, look, when you're a kid, you are in some sort of of bondage. You don't have full and total freedom. Verse 3, he says, so also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Everybody say sonship. Say daughtership. The implication here, right, is that, that we would be adopted into his family. We would be made sons and daughters. There was a time where we were not free. There was a time where we were in bondage to sin. We were in bondage to the law. The law stood and had us condemned. But because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice, because he died in my place, because he took those nails for me, now I've been allowed to be brought into the family 
of God. Have you ever brought somebody into your family? Maybe you opened up your home and allowed somebody to live with you. Maybe, maybe your kid just had like a best friend, and, and that best friend was like an honorary member of your family. They went on vacations with you. They called you mom or dad. Like they were just like that extra bonus family member, right? Um, I think that's a beautiful thing. I had a family, in fact, many of you met last year, Brandon Philbeck and his wife, Tammy, some missionaries that we support. Brandon's family adopted me in high school. They embraced me as their own. This is how you know you've been fully embraced as your own. When you go to your friend's house and you can open the fridge without asking, right? That's when you've been adopted. You have the rights of a son. You have the rights of a daughter. You can just go grab whatever you want. You don't have to ask. You don't even have to say thank you. I tried to most of the time. Earl and Linda, if you ever watch this, thank you for adopting me and embracing me as your own. There's something powerful about adoption, isn't there? Saying, like, you, you, you weren't born into this, but we're bestowing it upon you. It's a beautiful thing. It's what God has done for us. He has made us his kids. Verse 6 says, because you are his sons, you are his daughters, God sent the spirit of his son Jesus into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. The word Abba is frequently translated as daddy. It's a term of endearment for a dad. It actually uh, comes from an Aramaic word, which ultimately comes from a Chaldean word. Uh, for father, but it, but it has a personal connotation to it. It's not just the role of a father, it's the embrace of the father. I've got a four-year-old and a three-year-old who have started calling me daddy. Uh, my son calls me daddy quite a bit, and my son Judah is like the sweetest kid. He, he is the guarantee of affection, the guarantee of love. And in any situation, if I tell him I love him, he will say he loves me back. In fact, this week, he was very upset about something. Uh, something had happened. I don't even remember what it was. But he's crying, right? He's crying loudly. He's boo-hooing. And, and I'm getting ready to leave. And I said, Judah, can I have a bye-bye hug? And he comes out of his room where he's having his little episode, still crying, runs up to me and gives me a hug and a smooch and says, I love you, dad, through the tears. This is my son, right? Like this, like I'm so grateful for him. My daughter is not that way. Uh, my daughter is independent. My daughter makes her own decisions and she's going to give you her love when she wants to give you her love. Uh, it's going to be on her terms and her terms alone. Uh, but she has recently started calling me daddy with like two T's. Uh, so apparently we're raising a British girl. Uh, not sure how that happened, but that is who is in our home right now. Uh, but do you know what it means to me to be called daddy? Like how significant that is, how special that is to me? Yes, I want my kids to respect me. Yes, I want my kids to obey me. Yes, I want them to do the things that we ask them to do. But the most meaningful part of my relationship with them is not the rules that I put in place for them. It's not the things that I want to protect them from. The most meaningful part of that relationship is that intimacy that we have as children and daddy, right? Like that's special to me, and I believe it's special to God. I believe he wants to be your daddy 
right? He wants to be your Abba. He's not just the God who puts rules in place, which why does he put those rules in place? To protect us from harm because he knows these things are not ultimately beneficial for us. These things will ultimately destroy us. So he says, don't do those things. But he doesn't just want to be the authority figure in your life. He wants to be Abba. He wants that closeness with you, that relationship with you where you can crawl up in his lap, right? Where you can come to him through the tears, through the the frustrations of life and say, Daddy, I love you. Daddy, thank you. That's who he is and what he wants. In Mark chapter 14, verse 36, we see this word Abba pop up for the first time. Jesus is speaking says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but yet what you will. The first time Abba pops up in the Bible is Jesus, the only son of God, the firstborn son of God, talking to his father in a very difficult moment in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's getting ready to go to the cross for you and for me. He cries out, not just to his father, he cries out to his daddy. Protect me. Daddy, I don't want to go through this. Daddy, is there another way we can do this? Is there any plan B? But he ultimately submits to the will of the Father. Not what I will, God. Not what I will, Daddy, but what you will be done. So here, it is very natural for Jesus to call God the Father, Daddy, right? very natural for him to have that intimacy with his father. But here in Galatians, Paul says that the Holy Spirit who's sent to live in you, who's sent to empower you to live for God, the Holy Spirit that marks you as a believer, he now empowers you to have that same kind of relationship with the father as Jesus has. What do we say is the mark of adoption? That you can go in the house and open the fridge, right? That you're part of the family, you're in. What does that mean? It means you have access to all the benefits of family. Even though you may not have been born into that family, even though you may not have been officially part of that family to start out with, now you're part of it. You, Christian, you, father of the king, daughter of the king, you have the same access to the father as Jesus does. That's pretty massive when you can wrap your brain around that. You have the same access to relationship with him as the son of God does. That's freedom. That's freedom. You've been set free to have this intimacy with God who used to be distant. There used to be a veil. There used to be separation between God and man. But because of Jesus, now we can come near and have access to him. Verse 7, he says, so you are no longer a slave. If you're taking notes today, you need to write that down. You are no longer a slave, or you can make it personal. I am no longer a slave. You are no longer a slave. He says, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. So you are no longer a slave. But now, thanks to Jesus, you have been made a child of God. You are God's child. That is who you are. That's core identity. You got to wrap your brain around it. You got to believe it. You got to access it. So write down, you are no longer a slave. And then write down, you are God's child. Or write down, I am God's child. That's so fundamental to our identity as a believer. You've got to grab a hold of it. Verse 8, he says, formerly, he says, there used to be a time when you did not know God. 
You are slaves to those who did, who by nature are not gods. So we were slaves to something less. We were a slave to sin. We were a slave to the law. He says, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God. So not only do you know God, but God knows you. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Like, it's one thing, like, like sometimes you might see somebody, some celebrity, and, and man, you're, you're obsessed with them, with that athlete, or with that singer, or musician, or that reality star, God forbid, whoever it is, uh, where, where you know the details of that person's life, right? You know where they're from, you might even know, like, their family's names, you know a lot about them, but they don't necessarily know you. And so you might one day actually have that dream come true, and you bump into them somewhere, and you freak out because, oh my gosh, here they are. This is this person that I've looked up to for so long. And you might call out their name and they might even hopefully be gracious to you and sign an autograph and take a selfie and give you the opportunity to have that dream come true. But they don't know you. They don't know the details of your life. They don't know your family. They don't know anything about you. You know them, but they don't know you. Here's the beauty of our relationship with God. You know him, but he knows you. Isn't that awesome? He knows what's going on in your life. He knows your struggles. He knows your pain. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your sin. And he made you. He created you. He sent his son to die for you anyway. You, yes, you know God, but he also knows you. He says, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're not turning back to those weak and miserable forces, or are now turning back, excuse me, to these weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again. It's like, man, you've been set free from law. You've been set free from religion. You've been set free from legalism. And yet now here you are going back, returning to that slavery. One of the things that, that encourages me so much in my faith, one of the things that I'm so grateful for is Jesus didn't just die to forgive me of my sins. Jesus died to set me free from my sins. Do you see the difference there? Like it's one thing to be forgiven and to be forgiven is incredible. But he didn't just die that I could be forgiven. He died that I would actually be set free. That sin would lose its power in my life. That it would lose its pull on me. We can go back into the gospels and in multiple places we see Jesus heal somebody. And as he's healing them, he says this. He says, your sins are forgiven, right? This is before the cross, he hasn't died yet. So he's able to forgive sins. He didn't have to die to forgive our sins. He could forgive sins, but you know what he couldn't do? He couldn't set us free from our sins until he died. The death and resurrection of Jesus was when Jesus was able to die. It says that he went, he descended into hell while he was dead. He went and fought the enemy and he took the keys to sin and death. He won victory for us. So not only now am I forgiven of sin, but I'm free from sin. That's huge. That's massive. That's significant. Sin has no power in your life except the power that you give it. Except the power you allow it to have. So Paul says, why would you go be enslaved by something again that you've been set free from? Why would you return to something that Jesus died that would have no power or hold on your life? He, he says, verse 10, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. What is he talking about? He's saying they're, they're observing the Jewish calendar. 
These Judaizers have come in and they've said, look, if you want to know Jesus, you got to do all the stuff the Jews do. So you got to get circumcised. You got to do this. You got to do that. You got to do these festivals. You got to celebrate these holidays. You got to honor this stuff. Paul is not against those holidays. Some people take this verse and be like, you shouldn't celebrate Christmas. You shouldn't celebrate Easter because Paul says you shouldn't be observing any calendar. That's not what he's saying. If you know Paul, Paul observed those things himself. Paul's not saying there's no value in having a calendar or observing these holidays. He's saying if you're doing those things because you think that makes you right with God, you're missing it. Right? If you think, hey, I can show up to church on Christmas and Easter and I'm good to go, there's no value in that. Right? It's Jesus who makes you good to go. It's not celebrating Christmas and Easter. Those things have no value in and of themselves. What's the value of them? Is that they allow me to see Jesus for who he is. They remind me what Jesus has done. If you know City Church, we're big Christmas and Easter people. That we already got our first Christmas Eve planning service, or planning meeting on the schedule. It's on the calendar. It's coming up. We're about to do it. Uh, we're excited for that. We believe in those things, but Paul says, look, don't believe that those things have the power in and of themselves. Jesus has the power. He's the one. Verse 11, or excuse me, yeah, verse 11. He says, I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. You ever felt like your efforts on somebody's behalf were wasted? You got a kid who isn't serving Jesus. You're like, man, I've done so much. I've poured out so much. And it just seems like my efforts are wasted. A sibling, a parent, a spouse, Somebody who's valuable to you, somebody who, who means something to you, maybe a coworker that you've been reaching out to for like years and years, and it just seems like nothing will penetrate their heart. Paul has this, this moment of transparency, this moment of honesty, and he's like, man, I just, I'm afraid I wasted my time. I pointed you to freedom, and yet you've chosen something so much less than freedom. But here's what I love about Paul's example here. I love that he can identify with that frustration that we may feel that we've wasted, but he didn't stop. He's still pursuing the Galatians. He's still praying for the Galatians. He's still going after the Galatians. He doesn't say, look, I feel like my effort's been wasted. He doesn't allow his feelings to dictate his actions. He's honest with his feelings. He owns his feelings. But he says, I'm going to do the right thing for you, even though I feel like I'm wasting my time. And sometimes I get up here, and, and man, I'm, I'm preaching, and I can just see the light bulbs going off. And I can see people connecting. And I can see people, man, engaging with the word of God. And then sometimes I do this, and I'm like, man, I feel like everybody could fall asleep right now. <laughs> right? It's like I feel like I'm wasting my time. But you know what? I'm going to preach my butt off anyway. I'm going to do my best anyway because I believe that, that even though if it feels like it's wasted, that something is depositing, that the Holy Spirit is speaking, that he's at work and he's doing something. If you're frustrated today and you feel like your actions on somebody's behalf are wasted, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Verse 12, he says, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. What's he talking about? Paul was a Jew. And as a Jew by birth, as a Jew by, by faith, uh, the law forbid him to interact with Gentiles. The law of Moses forbid him from, from having these interactions with Gentiles that he had to have in order to point them to Jesus. So he says, I became like you. I, I abandoned that aspect of my identity. 
of the way that I was raised, of the things that I was taught. I became like you. And he says, so now I plead with you, become like me. In the same way that I turned aside from that stuff that was less than Jesus, that stuff that was there for a season, but that there's no freedom in it. And the same way I turned aside from that, now I want you to follow my example. Become like me. Leave that stuff in the dust. And then he says, you did me no wrong. He he transitions into this season. He's going to spend the next few verses talking about his personal relationship with the Galatians. He begins to point to, to the things that they did together, to the things that they've experienced together. He says, look, I believe in you guys. I see something in you guys. Man, when I was there with you, you didn't do anything wrong. You treated me so well. In fact, he's going to go on to tell us how well they treated him. He says, verse 13, as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. We don't know the full story of this, but, but somehow Paul had gotten sick, and maybe he was supposed to go further. Maybe he had a, another destination in mind, but he had to stop where he was at because he was sick. And, and so God used that illness to bring the gospel to the Galatians. We don't know the, all the details, but he said it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. In verse 14, he says, Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. The power of hospitality. They opened their, their arms to him. They opened their homes to him. They welcomed him in, even, even while he was sick. Even in 2,000 years ago, they had a lot less understanding of medical conditions than they do today. Sure, there was fear of, of, could this be contagious? Could, could bringing him into our home affect our family, whatever? And they said, no, we're going to welcome this man of God. We embrace this man of God in the midst of what he's going through. So there's a deep relationship here. This wasn't just Paul showed up and preached four revival services and hit the road, right? This wasn't just a guy who stood behind a pulpit and, and, and broke open the word of God and they had a, a, a moment and then Paul peaced out. They, they experienced some stuff together. They went through some sickness, some illness, some pain together. You know those, those difficult seasons in life, the stuff that we hate, a lot of times is where we form our, our deepest bonds with people. It's like the people who help us through mourning, the people who help us through the, the stuff that, that nobody else wants to be there for. Uh, when, when my parents were pregnant, when my mom was pregnant with me, now my parents were pregnant, dad was not pregnant. When my parents were pregnant with me, uh, they, they took the roof off of their house in Seattle to add a second floor. Uh, homemade, do-it-yourself, add a second story project. Uh, it was the middle of July, and as they took the roof off the house, uh, it, it flooded. Uh, and so this massive just destruction, uh, thankfully some con man insurance agent had sold my dad flood insurance, and so they were covered, which they shouldn't have been. It was like insurance you don't, nobody ever needs, but they needed it. So God was good and protected them in this, but we actually had to live in a hotel. I say we because I was there even though I wasn't out of the womb. We believe that I was alive. I was a person. So we had to live in a hotel for, for a season while all this stuff got fixed. Well, well, my dad shared with us many times that the men from the church who went over and helped do the awful work of putting this back together, of ripping out stuff that was destroyed, of stuff that was not very fun, and how massively significant that was for him. You see, my dad had only been a believer at that point for like three years. And he says, I saw the body of Christ at work. I saw this thing come together in a way that I never would have experienced if we never took the roof off the house. Doesn't mean that God caused that to happen or God sent that rain to destroy our house. But it means that, man, in the midst of the thing the enemy wanted to use for evil, God had a plan for good. 
right? And so Paul says, look, I went through some rough times while I was with you. These weren't my favorite days. This wasn't my best mission trip. I was sick. I was ill. I was a pain in the butt to be around. I know I was an inconvenience to you, but you opened your homes and your lives and your heart to me. He appeals to their bond of their relationship. He says, where then is your blessing on me now? We went through so much together, and now you're turning your back on me. He says, I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Paul is a master of exaggeration sometimes. Uh, he, he can say some things that are a little bit shocking. That's a pretty strong visual, right? He says, you'd have torn out your eyes and given to me. Verse 16, he says, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? So people have come in and have lied to you, and now you see me as the enemy because I'm the one standing here telling you the truth. I've got two last points for us as we wrap up this message. The first one is this. The truth creates enemies. Isn't that true? The truth creates enemies. This week, Mario Lopez makes this statement that, that it's dangerous for parents of a three-year-old who says, hey, I think I'm a boy or I think I'm a girl, to start treating that child like this opposite gender, to start celebrating them as transgender at three years old. He says, look, that's dangerous. The kid doesn't know who they are yet. I've got a three-year-old. Some days she thinks she's a dog. Some days she thinks she's a baby. Some days she thinks she's British, right? Like, she, she, she's, she's three. She doesn't know who she is. He says, look, it's dangerous for parents to start reacting to this and, and to overreact to this and set their kid on a, on a course for destruction and failure. And you know what happened? Man, the whole media backlash against him. The whole world has, has come out. He's just blasted on Twitter. That's A.C. Slater, man. I grew up on Saved by the Bell. That's my boy, right? And you know what? He's right. That's a dangerous thing for a parent to start acting like the thing that their kid says at three years old is really who the kid is. The child doesn't know who they are at three years old. The truth creates enemies. It doesn't mean we don't stand for the truth. Paul says, look, you're starting to treat me as your enemy because I've spoken truth to you and I'm not gonna stop speaking truth. I'm not gonna start telling you what you wanna hear so that you like me because I love you too much for that. The truth creates enemies. And know this church, a friend stabs you in the front. Somebody who really loves you, somebody who really cares about you, they're gonna tell you the truth to your face even when it's not something you want to hear. Man, that's one of the, the, the greatest things when you have somebody who loves you enough to say, hey, here's the situation, and to stab you in the front. So know that a tr the truth will create enemies, and a friend will stab you in the front. 